Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Stanford economic historian Gavin Wright. During our conversation, Gavin talks about his interest in the South, the history of slavery in America, and the issue of the Confederate flag. Gavin Wright, I wanted to uh, first thank you so much for coming on The Exchange, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we were talking a little bit before the the interview about uh, how you got interested in the Confederacy, and I, I would love to sort of learn a little bit about your personal background and what kind of, what sort of happened in your life that made you interested in, in, in the Confederacy itself. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Really, Confederacy isn't quite the right words because my most recent book is about the civil rights era. The states of the former Confederacy are a convenient uh, unit for that. But in a way, I I can answer both uh, questions uh, jointly. Uh, It goes back to the summer of 1963. I was a college student at Swarthmore College, and I had worked uh, after my first year, saved up a little money. I wanted to do something more interesting, and one of the interesting things happening in those days was the civil rights movement in the South. I had never been in the South or had any idea it was like a foreign country in the newspapers. But I got a chance to go on this project sponsored by the American Friends Service Committee in a little town called Warrington, North Carolina, up in the northeast part of that state. Warren County is a black majority county uh, in the old tobacco belt. And still to this day, this is one of the poorest areas in the country. Hmm. Uh, And not much was happening, but there was a local couple, uh, the Claytons. Theosis Clayton was a black lawyer who'd come, he said, uh, work in the first integrated law firm in the state. Uh, And his wife, Eva Clayton, was the local uh, sponsor of our group. The idea is you brought in some college students, uh, an integrated group, and start talking up uh, voter registration that this would uh, be... uh, a good uh, start for an area where not much was happening. Did you realize immediately upon going to the South that, that this sparked a, a particular interest for you? And what was the, the sort of next no, steps? No, I had no particular uh, notion at all. <laughs> uh, and as on a lot of projects like this, you spend much of the summer asking, what are we really accomplishing here? Are we mm-hmm. doing more go- harm than good? Uh, And I certainly had the idea that this would be a very long-run project. And we had this image of people heroically working up their courage, uh, maybe memorizing some paragraphs from the state constitution or something, going in there and bravely facing down that registrar. Uh, And what really was going to accomplish? Because in my – what I could see was certainly we felt we were on the right side, but these problems were economic. In nature, these were very poor people with poor educational background and facing a bleak future uh, in uh, farming. Uh, so, what good really uh, was voting or even integrating some uh, establishments uh, really going to do? But I realized that I did not have enough understanding of the relationship between the race issue and the economic issue. So at least uh, in one way to tell the narrative of my life, I realized I needed uh, uh, better education. I decided to go to graduate school. Mm. 
study economics. And, of course, what I found was economics did not provide the answers I was looking for. Uh, so, really, I've been wrestling with these same questions for now more than 50 years. But I was always interested, and economic history was one of the branches of economics that seemed to me to have opened up uh, more scope uh, for creative thinking uh, than other parts of economics. And in fact, my advisor at Yale, uh, Bill Parker, had only recently come from Chapel Hill, uh, working with Bob Goldman uh, there. So uh, summer after my uh, first year of grad school, I had a chance to work on a project in this new, exciting, uh, quantitative economic history known as Cleometrics. They had a big new sample from the 1860 census matching slave farms, free farms, and population censuses. Uh, and they just needed a, grad, a fresh grad student to work with the data. It's a, it's a grad student's dream uh, to have a data set handed to you uh, in that way. Uh, so even though it was civil rights era that kind of got me in, and I knew in some broad sense uh, that uh, it would trace back to slavery, my actual entry into the intellectual uh, subject matter was to trying to come to grips with the slave economy uh, of 1860. So I've done quite a bit of work on that. I tend to think of these as intellectually quite different, historically connected for sure, but uh, nonetheless the atmosphere in the 1960s was really quite uh, different in the sense that I think it would be a big mistake. People often will say, well, you know, this, uh, these people are only one generation or two generations removed from slavery. You really have to, can't expect too much or something like that. I really don't think the background of slavery made it inevitable that things would be what they uh, were as of the 1950s and 1960s, uh, and certainly shouldn't be used as an excuse for going slow uh, mm. in your expectations. Well, then to catch up to the narrative in the 1960s, I came back three years later uh, to Chapel Hill to work on this project, and looking around me, I saw that a revolution had happened. Mm. Uh, Chapel Hill, people have trouble believing this because it has always purported to be a cosmopolitan, tolerant, wide-open place, much like the whole state of North Carolina. They had a bitter battle over integrating public accommodations. Uh, the majority of restaurants and uh, <clears throat> maybe 40% of the hotels and motels were, had racial restriction. And even though uh, many people made the argument that uh, it would be in the interests of the business groups as a whole to voluntarily, or at least on a local basis, uh, agree to desegregate simultaneously in Chapel Hill. They could not agree, uh, even on a local a public accommodations uh, uh, ordinance. And their turmoil was only ended by the Civil Rights Act passed by Congress. Uh, and I have... Uh, a couple of nice quotes in the book about people saying, yes, but quietly grateful that Washington had bailed them out hmm. because the disputes were essentially over. So that's what I mean when I say a revolution had happened, that at least those elements and, yes, with hindsight, you might say uh, access to a lunch counter uh, or even a movie theater doesn't seem like much economically. But in its day, that was a hot-button issue, mm -hmm. and it really did have economic content uh, because you hear these stories of people planning on, uh, um, to travel 
you're planning to travel and you don't know where you're going to be able to stay, where you're going to be able to get a bite to eat. So black families tended to pack their lunch in the car because that's what they uh, had to do. So I really think the Supreme Court was quite right Hmm. to say that this was an issue involving interstate commerce. Uh, Yes, that was kind of an excuse to uh, as a way of arguing that uh, the federal government had some jurisdiction here. But it was also true. Uh, And as I argue in my book, uh, it really was a good business move Hmm. for those uh, metro areas that very reluctantly acquiesced in desegregation, thinking that it would be economically costly because they thought, okay, uh, we're going to lose our white customers here. And even if we do it collectively, the fear was that a whole downtown area uh, would become a black area and whites would stay away. Instead, people got used to it very quickly so that these fears (laughs) evaporated within a few years. Of course, there were holdout areas elsewhere in the South But what I've worked with are the uh, federal case files from the Justice Department uh, enforcing the public accommodations laws. And what is undeniable is that by the 1970s, the complaints had stopped Hmm. coming in. Uh, And uh, what I also show is business was booming. Hmm. Uh, And so people, at least at that period in the South, tended to associate uh, tolerance and open-mindedness with economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a reasonable uh, association, and that association still prevails in today's world. Mm. But uh, I will have to acknowledge that many of the steps and the kind of evolutionary path that I thought the South was on and that most Southerners thought was on as of, say, the 1980s or so, uh, it became more doubtful in the 1990s, and it's certainly more doubtful today, especially if we look at uh, voting rights. Hmm. You mentioned that your sort of initial intellectual uh, research was in relation to the the data that you received about the 1860s. I'm wondering um, what sort of learnings, what sort of conclusions did you reach from from that that those that data the data that you received when you were just a young grad student? What, what did you learn about uh, the economy of the 1860s in the in the South? Well, the big issue there was, I shouldn't say 1860s, because that was the wartime decade, but 1860 was the very height of the antebellum prosperity of the slave south, and it was based on booming uh, conditions in the cotton market. So the whole issue then was, what was the nature of slavery as an economic phenomenon? Was it uh, profitable? Uh, Was it efficient? Uh, Efficient as defined by economists, and what were the implications for the long-run growth and development uh, of the South. So you may be aware there's a whole new insurgency in the history profession nowadays, uh, renewed interest in the history of capitalism. And those of us in economic history, well, we have mixed feelings. <laughs> on the one hand, we've been working on these topics uh, many years ago. Uh, and. Uh, at least we have some historians now interested in economic topics. Uh, So that's the good side. But they tend to not want to make much use of economics and they tend to be skeptical. They tend to think of economics as a kind of an apology for capitalism. And although economics may have played that role at different times in the past, by and large, that's a bum rap, uh, especially on a topic like uh, slavery. So the broad... Conclusion coming out of that research, I'll get back to my uh, my personal contribution, is slavery really was uh, a capitalist system. 
in the sense that profit-seeking, market-oriented behavior predominated and prevailed, and that most of the patterns we see uh, can be readily explained by uh, uh, the basic economic principles. Indeed, uh, if you ask the question, a lot of people have the idea this used to be what Southern apologists would say, but uh, many people entertain the idea. Slavery was an archaic system. It would have died a natural death if only the hotheads on both sides had not carried things too far. The Blundering Generation was the title of a popular revisionist book back in the 30s. Really, uh, that's a mistaken view because the white slave-owning South was riding high under slavery. Yeah, it was generating uh, a backward economy, but why should they care about that? Uh, they were some of the richest people in the, uh, in the country, and that is not just a tiny 1% elite. That was, well, in the cotton areas, it's about half of the farm households of the farms that had at least uh, one slave. So even somebody with a, maybe one isn't quite enough, but somebody with five or ten slaves would have been richer than the richest of the farmers, all but the richest of the farmers uh, in the northern states. So they, and they could see this prosperity continuing as far as the eye could see. They thought they had a virtual monopoly over the world's cotton supply, which was the basic uh, raw material for the leading industry of that day. Uh, that's what gave them the sense of global power uh, that uh, led to the secession movement. So uh, I really don't think uh, that there's much of an indication that slavery would have died uh, a natural death. Uh, what might have happened? Uh, how do we ever know about the history that didn't happen? I think the cotton boom would have come to an end. Slave prices might have declined. You mm -hmm. might have gotten a more serious national discussion about a compensated emancipation scheme. That is the way slavery was abolished in uh, the northern states after the American Revolution. Uh, they didn't just give up their <laughs> slaves voluntarily. That never happened. Uh, instead, they were compensated, and it was a very long, gradual uh, process. And, yeah, maybe something like that would have happened in the South. We tend to think when something big happens historically that that's the only way it, uh, it could have been. But uh, part of what keeps us in business as an economic historian is entertaining the idea that, no, there were other, other paths. Hmm. So broadly speaking, that is what my research confirmed. I did had a particular specialty on working on the cotton markets, uh, showing the extent to which the prosperity of the 1850s really depended on extraordinary uh, cotton boom conditions in the, on the demand side. Hmm. So in that sense, I think there the degree of their prosperity was uh, maybe overstated. Hmm. But that doesn't mean uh, that the slave owners would have been very eager or willing to give up their slave property uh, uh, um, anytime soon. Hmm. Talk, uh, talk about the demand at that point in, in the 1850s. What, what was it that was driving the, the, such high demand for the, the cotton that was being produced in the South? Well, you, as always in economics, you look on the demand side and the supply side. Uh, the demand was coming out of the Industrial Revolution, uh, something on the order of 75% uh, of the American cotton crop was exported to one country, and that was Great Britain, and that was the workshop of the world. They were, in turn, exporting uh, mainly cloth, uh, cotton cloth, to countries all over the world, uh, and to some extent, that, that was an unsustainable growth rate in the sense that you're getting a 
displacement of traditional handmade uh, products by machine-made products. Mm -hmm. uh, anything that is growing at 5% per year over a 40%, 40, 50-year period can't last forever. Yeah. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, the U.S. dominated world cotton production. Uh, it approached an ideal natural uh, area for upland cotton production in a pre-irrigation uh, world. And by far the best of those areas were the alluvial soils along the rivers uh, in, uh, uh, in what was then called the Southwest, uh, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, and other areas uh, along the rivers. So uh, this was why, you know, it's kind of a historical test case. When the war broke out and the world was denied access to American cotton supplies, uh, there were replacements uh, coming up. Uh, the two big, three big ones were Brazil, Egypt, and India. Hmm. And in all three cases, uh, when the war was over, it took... Uh, 10 to 15 years, but by 1880, the U.S. had resumed its dominant role in world cotton uh, production. Mm. Uh, and the other areas had, had, had backed off because mm. the price was back down to where it was before. So the historians who say so glibly that uh, the Industrial Revolution depended on slave labor, they're really not making a very rigorous connection there. It's true that the cotton was produced by slave labor, but if as a thought experiment, you might say, suppose slavery had been abolished nationwide, 1790, that's not something that almost happened, but you could imagine it because it, it was in the air. Hmm. Uh, the contradiction between the Declaration of Independence and the reality of slavery, that was a large part of what drove emancipation in the northern states. But if you had, I think the Supply-side response in terms of cotton production by free family-scale farmers would have been almost as rapid uh, in the South as, in fact, it was under slavery. Hmm. And another bit of confirming evidence there is that very fact that slavery did not exist anymore. I, that's another glib remark people make. Yeah, slavery was abolished, but it was almost like slavery, what came back. Not really. It was quite a different system. It was high turnover. Sharecropping, typically... Uh, was a one-year deal. Uh, it was a very different institutional system, not, not a kinder, gentler one, but a very different system. Hmm. And yet, in terms of cotton production, it was about as effective hmm. as the slave system had been. So, in a nutshell, that's uh, those are my conclusions from that phase uh, of my research. And just as a point of history, you mentioned earlier the the, the North had obviously abolished slavery prior to the South. Yeah. What, what were the, sort of the the economic influences that led to the North actually abolishing slavery? And I think the North generally there's a the uh, mythology or a story that Northerners tell themselves that they were always against slavery and. In truth, there, there had been slaves in, in northern states for, for many, many years. What, what, what did cause Very the good. decline I, I of see slavery you, in the you, north? You have done some reading on this matter. <laughs> uh, I've got a little section in an earlier book saying that the, the problem of historical memory, it seems to be something about slavery, that once it's abolished, people forget that, they were, that it ever was there. Obviously, the South couldn't quite do that because of the Civil War. But even there, they, they have fabricated uh, a whole notion that the Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights, and that is just an evasion. Mm. 
But to get back to your question, that's a tough matter. The slave owners in every northern state resisted it. The two biggest holdouts were New York and New Jersey. They didn't abolish it till after the turn of the century. And uh, New York State is the case for the uh, uh, 12 Years a Slave, uh, based on a memoir. He wasn't a slave, uh, but he had uh, uh, Solomon Northup was the son of a slave uh, who had been emancipated under New York's law. So it's really, uh, you have to ask, uh, where was the strength of the abolition movements uh, coming from? And I think there was an economic side to it. There was certainly a social side to it. Uh, the leading activists were, in fact, free black people hmm. who would not, <laughs> would not let it uh, go. Uh, and uh, you know, recent historiography has said, well, we have these heroic white abolitionists who got in most of the press, William Lloyd Garrison and others, uh, the Grimke systems, sisters who were pretty amazing coming out of South Carolina. But the majority of abolitionists were black. And as excluded as they were from schooling and voting in many states, they nonetheless participated in the political process in a big way. But they had something going for them, which was, uh, as the 19th century proceeded, uh, observers tended to associate slavery with economic backwardness. They looked at the South, and they could see uh, a, a different kind of society. Hmm. The North uh, was building canals uh, and roads and a little later railroads uh, and colleges and advancing uh, voting rights and, and not for African-Americans, but for uh, people without property. Uh, and the South was not doing much uh, of that. They were rich, but underdeveloped. Uh, and so this image, uh, one key thing to look at is what was happening to land, property values. In the North, property values were riding high. In the South, slave property values were riding, but not land property mm. values. And an interesting debate, since you talk about historical forgetting, the state of Illinois clearly had a pro-slavery majority as of the time of statehood, 1818. If, it, if they'd taken a vote in 1818, I'm pretty sure Illinois would have voted to come in as a slave state. Hmm. But they couldn't do that because uh, the uh, Senate had arrived at the idea of a balance between free and slave states. Also, the Northwest Ordinance had prohibited slavery north of the Ohio River. So they couldn't get in that way. So they made a very clever argument, which is we'll come in as a free state because they're making us do that. But the principle is very clear that states get to decide, are we going to be slave or are we going to be free? So that after we're in, <laughs> we'll have a new constitutional convention uh, and then we can have a straight vote up or down. So 1824, there was a vote on whether to have that new constitutional convention in Illinois, which everybody understood was a referendum about slavery. Hmm. And it was defeated by approximately 6,000 votes to 4,500 votes, mainly because of an influx of New Englanders into the northern part of that state. If you know the geography mm -hmm. of Illinois, as well as Indiana, Ohio, the northern counties are very different from the southern counties. Southern counties are pretty southern, and northern counties were settled by New Englanders. Uh, it really was a reflection, and the, the debate revolved around. On the uh, southern side, they said, this is crazy. You know, we want to attract rich people with money to our state, just the kind of people we want, but we're keeping them out. 
they're going to Missouri instead. And the Northerners said, hey, look at the track record. Look at the rate of growth of agricultural land values in the northern states and in the southern states. Uh, it's much more rapid in the northern states, and we think that's because of slavery. So it was an economic argument, and it did have to do with the idea that slavery was uh, bad for development. I think an accurate perception, even though their way of analyzing it uh, was probably not uh, entirely, uh, entirely accurate. But it certainly fulfills the point about historical memory because once that vote was defeated, 1824, it was, never came up again in the state of Illinois. And Illinois prides itself as being the land of Lincoln, <laughs> cradle of liberty, uh, and so on. And, you know, civil rights was kind of like that too. Uh, just to swing the topic, uh, I said I think of these as very different, uh, intellectually very different matters. And I do think so. But... You know, that public accommodations, desegregation was bitterly resisted by most business people. And as soon as the matter was settled, they changed their tune, including rewriting their own personal history. Mm. I have a favorite quote from uh, Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, site of the first sit-in in January of 1960. Uh, they had a new uh, chamber of commerce. Uh, this is in Bill Chafe's book, The Duke uh, Historian. Uh, who said, well, when I first came here, this issue was splitting the town. Uh, and people were viewing the sit-inners as subversives, as people trying to destroy society as we know it. Three years later, the mayor is talking about, hey, we were the site of the first sit-in, <laughs> as though we had invented the electric light bulb uh, or something. And, you know, civil rights, tourism is actually big business uh, in the South. And, yeah, you have to wonder about the sincerity and the hypocrisy. On the other hand, uh, people are psychologically complex. And once you come around to change your view, uh, and uh, maybe that's just uh, what America has to offer is this kind of feel-good, uh, pro-business uh, kind of outlook on uh, – uh, yeah, we, we historians like to say we shouldn't forget the past, but sometimes forgetting the past uh, is the best option. Hmm. Take me back to slave times in, in, in the South, and I'm wondering, given given the the, the, the breadth of slavery in, in the South, if there were, there were different uh, sort of cultures re regarding slavery and different elements of, of now Southern states, was – uh, from an economic perspective, from a social perspective, was slavery just as brutal everywhere in the South? Was it worse in certain areas? What what was it like, and did it did it change over time in the hundreds of years when slavery existed down there? Yeah, that, that's a very big question. So I will only give a kind of a foreshortened uh, answer. Uh, certainly, the idea that slavery was more brutal and more horrible in the Deep South compared to the Upper South uh, has a lot of uh, validity in it. A lot of that had to do with uh, climate and uh, epidemiological uh, factors as much as slave treatment. But certainly uh, slaves looked in horror at being sold uh, down the river to say nothing of being split up from their family. But life expectancies uh, certainly were lower in those swampy malarial areas. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and a lot of those public health uh, features of the South, the three scourges of the South, malaria being one and uh, hookworm being another, pellagra being a third, they really weren't conquered uh, until the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, 
The other thing that certainly differed within the South was the relative share of slaves in the population and of slave owners uh, in the population. That made a big difference uh, in the politics. And yet, despite the fact uh, that the northern tier of slave states tended to portray themselves as more more moderate, I tend to think there were certain either-or attributes to that institution. And the case in point that I have in mind is the state of Kentucky. Kentucky was settled in the 1790s as part of the state of Virginia. In other words, not governed by the Northwest Ordinance, not ever part of the federal domain. So, of course, uh, there were slave owners who came in. And in the most uh, fertile areas of that state, uh, the bluegrass area, slave owners were pretty uh, entrenched. Nonetheless, they were a small minority in the population. And uh, during the 1790s, there was a kind of a insurgency of small holders, non-slave holding holders who bought into this idea that slavery is going to be bad for us. I mean, they saw a kind of unfair competition for land uh, between them and between the big slave owners. So they called a new constitutional convention too. And the upshot of that convention was that even though slave owners were a minority, the intensity of their concern and their interest in the institution led them to prevail. Uh, And since the anti-slavery position had mainly been brought by a group of ministers, the new constitution uh, stated that ministers could not serve in the state legislature. Uh, So there we have a state, and that too, it largely ended open debate about slavery in the state of Kentucky, and an abolitionist figure like uh, uh, Cassius Clay, or Hinton Helper, uh, Cassius Clay the planter, uh, which is where the name originated uh, for Cassius Clay the boxer, uh, he was basically chased out of the state uh, by hostile reaction. I'm referring there to Hinton Helper, but actually... uh, Clinton uh, wrote a book about uh, the adverse economic consequences of slavery. Uh, The point is an entrenched minority dominated the politics of the state. So you compare Kentucky to Illinois and you see two states that tipped in opposite ways and uh, with lasting consequences for their uh, thinking. state of Missouri was uh, somewhat different. Uh, The area along the Missouri River was called Little Dixie, dominated by slave owners. And uh, they, too, dominated state politics. Now, it's true, Missouri never quite succeeded in seceding. Uh, They almost did. Uh, The slave owners actually managed to raid the the vaults of the state-chartered banks uh, and mobilize uh, something of an army on the Confederate side. But they were invaded, uh, and that uh, never quite happened. So there was a state truly split. But during the slave period, their politics, and to a considerable extent, their economy were dominated by slave owners, even though the slave owners were a minority. So certainly there were differences across the South, and certainly the institution changed. Uh, One big factor was the change in the demography. Uh, Over time, despite the poor treatment and poor health conditions, the rate of growth of the slave population was almost as rapid as the rate of growth of the free population, so that by 1860, North America, which had had only about 5% of the African slave trade imports, had about 50% of the 
of the African-American population, well, 1860, you can say, of the slave population uh, in the whole Western Hemisphere. Mm. Uh, so that's something that evolved uh, over time. Uh, and yet on certain matters, <laughs> uh, such as open political debate uh, and the capacity of slave owners to dominate the political scene, uh, there's a real sense in which you were, you were either in or out. <laughs> mm. And uh, that's really the bifurcation uh, that, uh, that led to the Civil War. Mm. When you look back at, at the, the history of, of the Confederacy, the history of the South, uh, do, you, do you view the, just the incentives as being just so large that it corrupted people to the point where they would uh, do something that today seems to so many people just unconscionable, that the economic incentives were just so great that people's better angels were defeated uh, by, their, by their worse angels? H- how do you view the, um, the behavior in, in the South for, for people that um, I, I think it's just it's hard for people now to understand? What was it like for people then? Why, why was it that uh, slavery was just as, as rampant as it was? Uh, an excellent question. And uh, I think uh, there may be limits to our capacity to actually enter into the minds and hearts of uh, historical figures. But I think the way you put it is a pretty good uh, summary. Uh, As of the, let's say, 1750, uh, slavery prevailed in all of the colonies of British North America. I mean, one way to pose your question is uh, look at Great Britain itself. I mean, there was a country that prided itself in its freedom, both Britain and France. This kind of common law and folk wisdom saying, the air of this country is too pure to be breathed by a slave. If a slave were to set foot in this country, England, if they were to set it, that slave would be instantly free. That wasn't entirely true in either country, but nonetheless, the fact that this was a prevalent saying, we are proud free people and we don't have slaves here. And as always, uh, that anti-slavery view was a two-edged sword. Part of it was a vigorous statement about human dignity. It's just wrong for one person to own another. (laughs) But part of it was an economic statement. Um, Dates back to medieval cities. That is, the craft workers, the guild workers of this city are not going to tolerate competition from slaves. That is to say, people who are property from um, big-time big outsiders. So that is uh, that kind of mixture. Uh, and sure, if people can latch on to something that they see as serving their economic interests and yet formulate it in a way that also um, puts them uh, in a good moral light on the right side of history, something like that. They're inclined to do it. And yet they had to cope with the fact that the British Empire was presiding over a vast slave-based empire, the largest part of it being the Sugar Islands of uh, uh, the Caribbean, which were very important to the British foreign trade, uh, the rise of the British shipping economy. So how did they do it? Well, they rationalized. You could rationalize with uh, any number of devices. You could say a little bit like the way people rationalize war. Yes, ideally, we wouldn't have slavery anywhere, but uh, this is essential for the empire, and the empire is important for our vital interests in the struggle against France or Spain. 
Also, we have to be understanding. <laughs> These are remote, exotic places and foreign peoples, and we can't really tell them or know enough to tell them how they should run their operations. Uh, so they would rationalize. But uh, that really helps to account for what otherwise would be a real puzzle in terms of economic history and self-interested behavior. Why did British public opinion swing so rapidly from a situation where anti-slavery, anti-slave trade was an untouchable view of few extremists in the 1780s? By 1807, it was the only respectable view in town. Uh, well, it's because this new view came to, uh, on the horizon, the idea that you didn't really have to have slavery in order to maintain an empire. Uh, this idea that uh, slave production was really not necessarily the most efficient way to produce. And also the idea that most of the emerging markets for British goods were not slaves. They were free people uh, around the world. Uh, so that it was the idea that they could learn to live economically without slavery that led, I think, for fundamentally it was a moral position they were taking, but they had to convince people that it wasn't going to be economic suicide. Hmm. So that's the British side. But you have to tell the British side first because that was the background. That was right. the cultural context as well as the historical context for the abolitions uh, in the northern states. Now, as far as the southerners were concerned, they thought, we haven't changed. Our behavior was acceptable before. And suddenly you've changed your mind and decided it's unacceptable. You know, uh, we thought that uh, during its day, the opportunity to own slaves and to expand the size of your estate was part of the land of opportunity image of what would happen in America. So uh, this is, I don't say it's right. I don't say it as a form of apology, but the idea that I, you, you suggested that they just kind of grew into a position where behavior that had been acceptable for generations suddenly was being excoriated uh, from Europe and from the uh, northern states. So, yeah, you can say it's the incentives. But the main thing is not many people in the South made an active decision to join the slaveholding class. They were born into the slaveholding class. Yes, some did. Obviously, there was some expansion. But those born into it and even those born next to it uh, had every reason to see it. Well, this is just the way uh, we do things. And it did lead them to a kind of embattled sense of indig indignation <laughs> uh, and, and no doubt also into idealized formulations of their position as being very paternalistic uh, and probably, you know, for the, for the best uh, for these poor uh, people who only recently removed from, uh, from Africa. Hmm. So you, you get uh, – and, and that, that carries over into modern times. Uh, this idea that uh, if you press people down enough, uh, you can confirm your own prejudice, that this is really for the best because they couldn't possibly manage their own lives for their own way. It would be a cruelty to uh, put them uh, – to turn them loose into a society like this. Uh, which is why during those times both opponents of slavery or, or harsh critics like Abraham Lincoln but also supporters could agree on a movement like the colonization movement. Uh, even, you know, it looks like a pretty cruel thing to do. You're going to free people then ship them back to Africa, a place they hadn't, hadn't come from or didn't know anything about. 
And yet, uh, at least some of them uh, accurately saw that life was going to be pretty harsh uh, for them in a, in a very uh, racist society, whether they're in the North or in the South. Hmm. So, in, uh, in, looking, in looking at the, the, the kind of migration patterns of, of early Americans, it, was there something about the, the, the first immigrants to the Deep South especially that speaks to its future history of being – Sort of fervent slaveholders, or was it purely just a, a matter of, of sort of chance incentives economically for people that happen to grow and, and be born into this cotton-rich area of, of the Americas? You can certainly get different views on that from different historians. Uh, I tend to see it as a response to incentives, uh, including the incentives indicated by the prevailing system. Uh, there were certainly differences in the background uh, demography, um, and uh, people build up a self-image over time. But those uh, Northerners, you know, actually, uh, as of uh, 1780s, time of the Constitutional Convention, net migration was from north to south. Uh, because the opportunities seemed to be greater there. What were these opportunities? Well, it was this new emerging profitable crop of cotton. And if you're going into cotton, you might start small, but if you want to get big, you're going to be buying into slavery. Uh, a lot of press talks about how the northern economic interests, uh, certainly the cotton textile industry, but also the insurance companies and many others, routinely dealt with slave, owner, slave owners and uh, thought nothing of it. Uh, Responding to economic incentives, yeah, thought nothing of it. Maybe that's too harsh. No doubt some of them pondered this. But by and large, uh, you work – business people tend to work with the markets that they that they find. Uh, so I'm more inclined to see that slavery and its, its orbit uh, within the South is what created these attitudes as opposed to saying that uh, it was a selected group of people. You know, most, most of the population growth among the free population – uh, was uh, natural population growth. Uh, so it was Southerners who were born in the South uh, and not uh, uh, people from the British Isles choosing to move. Uh, I mean, or, most ordinary, well, in the 19th century, uh, overwhelming share of the uh, immigrants from Europe, beginning with Ireland, uh, went to the North because that's where the jobs were uh, and that's where their kinsmen uh, were. So that is an aspect of Southern history relating the economy and politics and society is uh, that it was a relatively isolated population uh, that migration paths tended to go on east-west lines and mm -hmm. so that reinforced uh, a kind of pattern that yeah I think you're right to trace it back to economic interests but you also get a lot of continuity and legacy in how you see those economic interests and how you relate to outsiders. You spent many years researching these topics, obviously, and I'm wondering if uh, during that time, if, if in your conversations with, with journalists, if there were questions about the South that you wish you had been asked that uh, you would like <laughs> to answer, or if there are just interesting things that you've come across in your research of the South that most people just don't know about. Well, that's a nice open-ended invitation. Uh, in, in, in modern times, I mean, I I, I kind of use my status as an economist, an economic historian, uh, to pose questions relatively narrowly so that I think I can answer them. That is, what has been the economic consequence 
um, certain policy choices. Uh, and trying to dig deeply into the psyche uh, and into the culture, uh, I try to avoid. Not because it isn't interesting or important, but because I think there are limits to how deeply we can understand these things. Uh, and often because I find people respond to economic incentives uh, despite what <laughs> their, their state of mind uh, or state of uh, attitude might be. So those are the toughest questions, but I'm not sure I necessarily welcome them when, uh, when, the, uh, when they're put to me because that's the, the kind of answer I tend to give. Uh, it did seem to me that the uh, really revolutionary changes that happened in the South – in the 1960s, and the fact that we did not have uh, armed revolt of white Southerners, we didn't have a renewal of secession, by and large, we had acquiescence uh, in what seemed to be inevitable. Uh, <coughs> it shows to me that there was flexibility, uh, that there was uh, room for change, and I still believe that. And that was the message of C. Van Woodward in his book, Strange Greer of uh, uh, Jim Crow where Southerners would tend to say, this had to do with segregated schools or segregation in general, uh, oh, we've always done it this way, it goes back to time immemorial. And he was able to argue that no, actually, after the Civil War, there'd been a whole period of experimentation and flux, uh, and it was really only the consolidation uh, of the white supremacist South uh, in the 1890s, the decades 1890 to 1910 which really put an end to that feeling. Uh, well, subsequent research uh, may have questioned that conclusion, but I think the broad conclusion was right. And so I guess that would be my, my main message. Uh, it's not, a not the way the question is usually put to me, but maybe it responds to your idea, uh, which is, is the South capable of real change? Uh, I think it's shown that it is. Mm. And I think the fact that the dominant Republican majorities in the South seem so locked into their ways that you might despair uh, is, is too pessimistic. Uh, there really is, there have been times when a kind of a working political majority of uh, African Americans and certain segments of the uh, white population uh, have prevailed in certain southern states. And now with the added uh, presence of a third group, uh, which is Hispanic immigrants, who are potentially a big factor in every state, but especially uh, in the South. Uh, people like William Frey, he's a demographer at uh, Brookings, and he says, well, the demography is inevitable. You know, This uh, aging white male majority clinging to its power by trying to restrict the vote in state after state, including North Carolina, uh, they can't survive in the long run. You know, I think he may be overly confident in that. It's not going to be a pushover uh, at any time. But I do think the potential for change is there. Hmm. Maybe a more pointed question about you, you mentioned one of the most interesting things about that period of time is is, is the boom period of the cotton industry right before the Civil War. Yeah. Was that the most profitable time in economic history for slave owners in American history or had there been other times when being a slave owner was just as profitable or, or more so? No, I think that was clearly the most profitable time. Uh, you have to differentiate the period before and after 1807. Because the United States abolished the African slave trade the very same year as the British. It's a fascinating comparison. Uh, 
because for the Brits, it was an object of great celebration, uh, considered a great national act of national pride that they selflessly abolished this major component of wealth for many of their citizens. Uh, I think uh, Queen Elizabeth took the occasion to apologize for the slave trade. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they think of that as a landmark, uh, much the way we look at the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther King's <laughs> I Have a Dream speech. In this country, that same anniversary passed almost without notice and not popular, uh, much popular attention. There were, like, there were a conference or two. And why is that? Well, I think uh, you can – part of the origins go back to that act itself, 1807 because it was passed with support from both North and South. They disagreed on all the details about slavery, but they agreed on the desirability of closing off the outside supply. Why did the South support it? Well, because slave wealth was emerging as a major component of their wealth, and shutting off supply meant that uh, the value of that wealth was going to increase over time. And indeed it did. Uh, investing in slaves in 1807 yielded a much higher return than anything else you could uh, think of. It wasn't all smooth sailing because capitalist economy fluctuates. Uh, you had prosperity in the 1830s, but then you had uh, depression in the 1840s. Cotton price went down. Slave prices went down. But from 1845 to 1860, it is the all-time record for prosperity, and it's mainly reflected in the value of slave property. Uh, the price of a slave essentially doubled between 1845 and 1860, and then you have to remember this is a form of property that expands over time, natural population growth. Uh, if you own a woman slave, you're going to own the offspring. Uh, so uh, that, I think, it's pretty safe to say uh, that that was the most prosperous period. Hmm. Now, if they didn't have slavery, uh, they would still have had cotton. It would still have been a prosperous period, and it might have been a much better period for reinvesting some of those earnings in infrastructure, in schooling, uh, in building more flexibility, uh, in getting more industry at that phase. But instead, the slave owners enjoyed their profits and uh, did very little in, in the way of uh, building up a strong regional uh, economy. And that's a matter of incentives. Uh, people, if you attribute uh, patriotism uh, to an investor, uh, oh, that's usually a gloss on what really is governed by uh, economic incentives. So I don't say they were non-economic or irrational in what they were doing. How, how could you say they were doing so well economically? Uh, you, you're hard-pressed to argue they could have done even better. Mm -hmm. But in terms of long-term investment in regional prosperity, uh, that, that was the implication. Is, it, is there evidence that after 1807, because the supply had been cut off, that the treatment of slaves generally improved overall or, or not really? Uh, that issue was debated in, uh, in the West Indies because they made the same argument. And there is some evidence uh, that you got amelioration is the term, uh, some improvement in conditions. Uh, it's less clear in the case of the U.S. because the slave trade as a share of the total was never that great. They al already had a much more rapid population growth. Uh, so I don't know of specific evidence uh, saying that uh, treatment 
was more favorable over time. And as uh, some of the historians, like Edward Baptist, uh, have argued, there's uh, some reason to think that treatment got less favorable over time because they were moving to the cotton frontier in the southwest, and certainly the the work effort, the intensity of the work pace uh, was uh, not getting gentler. <laughs> it might have been uh, intensifying, if anything. So um, I thought perhaps you were going to ask, a question off, often comes up, were they actually inducing or encouraging uh, high fertility rates among the slave population, that old uh, slave breeding hypothesis? Not too much support for that either. Uh, as a very direct uh, uh, intervention on the part uh, of slave owners. Uh, really, uh, mature slaves were very valuable, young slaves were very valuable, but an infant slave was only worth maybe $50 or so because uh, infant mortality uh, was so high during that time. So instead, it appears that they were mainly encouraging population growth by taking a laissez-faire uh, attitude, by not discouraging uh, pregnancies uh, uh, the way it was often done in the West Indies and in Brazil. In looking at the South and the, the, the history of the South, I'm, I'm curious about the the average number of, of white Southerners that actually owned slaves at a given time. And what was the sort of wealth gap between the upper, upper class that owned slaves and were owned a lot of land and was particularly wealthy, had cash crops that they could sell, and everybody else? What did that picture look like over the, the history of the Confederacy? That's a long period of time, obviously. So maybe at, mm-hmm. you know, at, at a couple of different points in history. I think that's a mistake that uh, people make. Uh, that is looking at the West Indies where you've got you know, a very, very tiny share of the island's uh, population that would be uh, white. In other words, uh, demographically, those islands were dominated by Africans. And the slave-owning population, well, a large portion of that didn't even live in the islands. They were absentee. They would hire agents. These were unhealthy places to be. So there, it's hard to even know what gap you're even talking about because you've got a very small group of non-slave-holding white population. And the uh, the owners would be the super-rich back in Britain. The U.S. case is really quite different from that, and yet people often don't make that distinction. They tend to use terms like planters and slave owners uh, somewhat interchangeably as though they were talking about you know, the upper 1%. Uh, really, it's much more of a spectrum. Uh, I mentioned the figure that in the cotton areas, you have about half of the farms uh, that were slave-owning farms. If you look at the whole South, that is bringing in Kentucky and Virginia and Maryland and so on, you might be looking at a quarter of the population that was slave-owning. That's still a very large share. That's not the 1%. It's true. Within that uh, 25%, there's a whole spectrum. Uh, Somebody owning one or two slaves uh, wouldn't be extremely wealthy. Uh, But they wouldn't be that far removed Mm from the largest and most prosperous of the non-slaveholding population. There certainly was a middle class uh, that was non-slave, a a farming middle class that was non-slaveholding or very small slave owners. So I think that's a better image to say it was a spectrum. Uh, Yeah, because slave prices were rising, it's pretty clear the gap between slave owners and non-slave owners was also rising over time. But it really is not, (laughs) inequality is not the primary 
uh, feature of that society, unless you're talking about the inequality between the free population and the slave population. This was a majoritarian slave uh, society. Mm. And those secession conventions were dominated by slaveholders who really thought, uh, there's a question, how much was rational and calculating, how much was irrational and fear-mongering? But through one channel or another, they thought that life was going to be intolerable in the Union uh, under Lincoln. And that was just as true, or maybe even more true, of the small middling slave owners as it was of the really big guys uh, out in Louisiana and Mississippi. And there were at least some of them who accurately saw that this was a suicidal move. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole issue was, uh, was Lincoln actually going to do anything about this, or would they be able to walk away from the Union? Mm -hmm. Be tough to talk about the South right now without talking about the the resurgence of the interest in the Confederate flag in, in South Carolina and just the the conversation that seems to be taking place in in the U.S. about the Confederacy. Uh, is there a way? This is something I've been thinking about a lot before coming and talking to you. Is there a way to to think about the Confederate flag in a way that does not directly link that flag and its symbolism to racism and to slavery? Is there another way of viewing it? And I guess another way of asking that question is. Uh, South Carolina has been flying that flag outside of its Capitol building for quite some time now. As a black South Carolinian looking at that, is there a way that you could read into history uh, an analysis of that flag that does not directly link it to its slave-owning past? As a black, I would not ask a black South Carolinian to do any such thing. You know, President Obama himself, because uh, he... As he does, he indicates some respect for all points of view. Uh, but he openly called uh, for eliminating that flag, and he acknowledged uh, Governor Haley's uh, support for that. It did surprise me in one sense, but in another sense, uh, it did not, because I really think the heyday of that issue is past. See, in a lot of cases, including South Carolina, that symbol only got back onto the flag uh, during the civil rights crisis. They were kind of reinventing or at least reinvigorating this claim that they had this ancient uh, cultural heritage. And people can do strange, uh, play strange tricks with themselves. Uh, I would be reasonably sure that there are white Southerners who, in their minds, uh, really do believe that this is not a symbol of racism. It's a symbol of their family heritage and their people and their valor in battle. And President Obama even acknowledged that that was true. He just said, all we're saying when we take that symbol away is that the cause for which they fought, namely slavery, uh, was not right. Mm -hmm. So he was. He was not having any patience there with this claim that the Civil War was not fought over slavery. And I agree with him on that. And virtually every reputable historian uh, agrees with that. Uh, you can look at the debates and all the secession conventions, and they're all about slavery. So uh, nonetheless, your question was, is there another way to look at it? And I think the very fact that people can somehow defend that society while not being willing to defend the main identifying feature of that society, it just shows you what people have the capacity to do. But what I would come back to, uh, they did, in fact, vote. <laughs> Once Governor Haley indicated it's okay to do it, they had a vigorous debate, but they did take that vote. Uh, it's the fact that part of the rise of the conservative 
predominantly white majorities in the South, they gave up Southern patriotism as the primary basis for their ideology uh, after the Civil Rights Revolution. They reformulated it in non-racial terms uh, as being a matter of conservative economics or a matter of work ethic or low taxes or government inefficiency, all these things. And I really think many people in their minds uh, believe that. I'm not a racist. Uh, Now, you know, objective observers can look at these so-called dog whistle politics and see all sorts of coded racial symbols. uh, And uh, that's hard to deny. It's also hard to deny that these majorities are overwhelmingly white and that they hardly even make an effort uh, to go after the the black vote. Nonetheless, uh, since you're asking about the psychological reality, uh, I think that's an important factor that most Southerners, and this includes people who have migrated from outside the country, uh, they buy into the local ideology, but they view this, uh, this hang up over the Confederacy and the Confederate flag as being something they're just as happy to see uh, uh, pass away. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you is is about the future and the future of the Confederacy. And you you alluded to this a little bit earlier in the interview. If you were to project or make some calculated guesses about what the South will look like in 10, 25, 50 years, um, what does it look like? Is is it a a drastically different place than than the one we see today with with deeply conservative views? Um, You mentioned the demographics changing in the South. How, if you had to guess, if you had to make an estimation of what the the future of the South looks like, what, what would that picture look like? Well, you must realize uh, I've been burned <laughs> on this matter. Uh, we say, well, maybe predicting the future is so risky we we shouldn't do it. Uh, but we all have to do it. We uh, have to have some idea. When I say I've been burned, what I mean is that back in the 80s, when I published my first book about uh, the South, my, my very first book was about the slave economy, but uh, the next one, Old South, New South, was about... Uh, It really took it right up to the Civil Rights Revolution, and I said at that time, the South is going to blend into the country, and these regional differences are going to uh, wither away. And why shouldn't they? After all, because the race issue seemed to be settled. Uh, You have rapid interregional flows of both labor and capital, both ways, and you have national, if not international, modes of communication, uh, television and popular culture and so on. There's just no reason for a persistence of Southern distinctiveness anymore. It seems I was premature about that. Uh, but as I say, when it revived, it was not primarily a revival of the old segregation. You'll have a hard time. You'll find apologies for slavery in the South. You'll have a hard time following, uh, finding apologists, or at least people willing to say it in public, Uh, for the old Jim Crow segregation uh, regime. Uh, So it's a new formulation, but it's all the more powerful uh, for that. And, uh, but the other element in situation, seems paradoxical, but I think it's gonna be a big part of the South as it emerges over the next few decades. And that is that we've had uh, uh, high rates of black returned migration Mm. out of the North and West into the South, uh, 
I dated from the Civil Rights Act. It began in the 1970s, but it accelerated in the 80s and 90s, and it has continued right on through the Great Recession. So why is it that blacks are moving south despite the adverse political trends that you allude to at the state level where they're moving into the metropolitan areas? And most of the, virtually all of the major metropolitan areas in the south uh, have black political leadership uh, now. And that black political leadership, uh, it's a leadership representation, uh, has economic consequences. Uh, if you look at maps of black-owned businesses, uh, they're much larger. In the, basically, you have a larger black presence both in the economy and in the, uh, in the society in the South. Uh, and over time, that uh, is going to make a difference in the politics. So I do think uh, that this prediction that Southern politics have got to change <laughs> – uh, in some form or fashion that uh, I certainly don't want to try to predict uh, the uh, the details on that, but in some sense more moderate uh, than they are today. Uh, I mean, on this question of is voter restriction going to be viable? Are we going to get a decisive statement? Uh, something that just seems undeniable that political majorities are trying to restrict the vote as a way to maintain in power. And yeah, they can say, well, we're not doing it on a racial basis, so the Voting Rights Act doesn't really apply. Well, but they're doing it on a basis basis that has a very strong racial and ethnic component, so it's not exactly neutral. And you may recall the disfranchisement measures of the 1890s up to 1910 also did not have anything explicitly racial about them. They could not have because the 15th Amendment made that impossible, but everyone understood that that's really what they were about. So I think we're pretty darn close, not in the magnitude, but in the degree of hypocrisy. But is this going to be something that the Supreme Court's going to step up and put an end to? Uh, I wouldn't bet on that uh, anytime soon. I do think that this emerging... Uh, majority uh, that is different from the one presently prevailing uh, is going to happen. Uh, and it's going to have economic consequences because I really think these extreme conservative uh, austerity type uh, low tax poor public school policies being pursued in the South are not good for the economy. Hmm. Uh, the issue there is, well, are they good for the uh, are they good for the members <laughs> of the major- of the prevailing party and just not good for the others. That's the way they see it. But there's a sense in which they're not good for the economy and it's still possible from time to time to mobilize the kinds of business interests that played a role in the civil rights revolution. They played a role in the, in the gay rights uh, revolution uh, as well. And they played a role in moderating uh, various policies. It's just they have somehow been superseded or Uh, overshadowed, but uh, that old civil rights, well, a new version of that old civil rights coalition, I think can and will recreate itself sometime. Mm. Uh, If you'll allow me uh, a 10 or 20 year horizon, (laughs) uh, that that might be a reasonably safe prediction. And one quick follow up there. What what are the modern modern methods that are being used to, as you said, not explicitly prohibit uh, one race or multiple races from voting, but but are targeted towards those overwhelmingly? What are the methods that are currently in place? Well, the the one most uh, getting most attention is voter ID laws. 
I mean, for maybe 90% of the population, uh, having a photo ID uh, is a routine matter of doing business. Uh, you uh, have a driver's license. You have some, probably more than one. And uh, being asked to show it is no real hardship. But for that 10% that don't have it, uh, they are going to be affected by it. And those are people who tend to vote in a particular way. So that's voter ID. But in North Carolina, that was only one of a large, and probably not the worst, a large series of changes in the procedures of voting. Since the Voting Rights Act, you know, most states, including the southern ones, had take step after step to make voter registration more convenient and to make voting more convenient by having a longer period in which you can vote. By making it possible to vote on Sundays, uh, I can't, I'd have to look up a full list. But all these measures uh, were heavily used by African Americans and by Hispanic Americans, and systematically, they're being shut down. Uh, now, the, the counter-argument, well, legalistic arguments, well, we always have legalistic arguments. I'm, when I hear them, I'm glad I'm not a lawyer. Uh, it seems to me the simple principle that voting uh, is a right, it should be a right, and it should be encouraged, not discouraged, uh, is so clear and so morally compelling uh, that at some point we're going to uh, revert to that as a national um, principle. Uh, it was uh, just to give a, a study reported online. I haven't looked at the details, but uh, it showed that the cutback in numbers of voters because of these measures in North Carolina was a large enough number to actually have tipped the senatorial race uh, in the last uh, election 2014. So it's big enough to matter uh, in states where it's uh, close. And if these measures are allowed to go forward, it'll get bigger and bigger. So uh, th that's the trend at the moment. Uh, and uh, my prediction that things are going to change is premised on the idea that th that trend will have to be reversed. But, you know, mobilizing large numbers of people uh, with with low incomes who don't follow the news uh, actively, uh, it, it's a tall order uh, to make democracy work in that way. And since you ask about attitudes, I think uh, uh, many Republicans feel in their hearts, well, people like that really shouldn't be voting. They're not well informed. Uh, they're being vote the way they're being told to vote, something like that. Well, that. Uh, I think that accurately describes their perception <laughs> that, that this, these acts of voting are not really legitimate. But if you believe in democracy, <laughs> I think you have to say that uh, there are very limited means for people in these categories to exercise any influence at all over public policy. And uh, the only way to do it uh, is to find ways to mobilize them in large numbers. And yeah, uh, <laughs> members of the elite might not find that uh, elegant or aesthetic, but it really should be there right. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 